Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by two global capital markets partners in Milbank's Sao Paulo office, Fabiana Sakai and Tobias Sternberg. We are experiencing an unprecedented moment in the history of the Brazilian capital markets. You have companies from all over the country, from all different industries, sizes, going public. It's really great to be part of all of this. Let's get to it. Last year in 2020, global equity issuances exceeded U.S. $1 trillion for the first time, up 56% from 2019. Half of that money was raised in the Americas. This is not too surprising when you consider the vast sums of money shoveled into financial markets by central banks and governments through monetary and fiscal stimulus to stabilize markets and ease the recessionary drop in demand due to the worldwide pandemic. Low rates on government bonds and bank deposits push yield-starved investors to seek growth in equities and make future corporate earnings look more valuable. Nowhere is the financial impact of low interest rates and high liquidity more evident than in Brazil the world's eighth-largest economy, and the largest in South America. IPOs on Brazil's B3 stock exchange last year exceeded the equivalent of $8.5 billion, over 3% of all new equity raised globally. Today I'm joined by Fabiana Sakai and Tobias Sternberg in Sao Paulo, who are right in the middle of this flood of deals, having acted for issuers in more than a dozen capital markets offerings in Brazil so far just in the first quarter of 2021, eight equity, and five debt offerings. They're working on another 15 active equity offerings now. Fabiana, Tobias, welcome. It's great talking to you. Thank you, Alan. Great talking to you, too. Thanks for having us. So, Tobias, you're new to the podcast. Fabiana was with me last year when we did an episode talking about Latin American capital markets. Today, we're going to focus on the Brazilian market. So, Fabiana, what's your take? If interest rates in Brazil continue at low levels, and pass and approve tax and administrative reforms that are so much needed for the country, especially post the pandemic scenario. And most of all, that the government is able to not only continue to provide fiscal stimulus and also emergency cash payments to low-income classes of the population, but keep the public spending cap rules this scenario will most likely continue very favorable for all these IPOs. What we see now is a much more developed and mature capital mm -hmm. markets uh, with companies from all different regions of the country, different sizes from different industries gaining access to the market and, and looking at it as, as a way of financing their activities, their operations, their, their expansion plans, uh, of really looking at the capital markets as a source of funds and I mean, in the midst of a pandemic, it, it, it has been really rewarding and gratifying for us to be, be able to help these companies grow and fund their operations, uh, generate jobs, become more competitive, become more environmentally and socially sustainable, and ultimately to help the country recover from, this, from the recession triggered by the pandemic. So Tobias, if we look at where Brazil is right now, and put the market in context. Obviously, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. We've had the surprise decision by a Brazilian judge, which could have impact on politics in 2022 in setting aside the corruption convictions against former President Lula da Silva and what that might mean for Bolsonaro and government spending and also the rise of treasury rates in the United States 
could lead to a drain of capital from emerging markets, including Brazil. By the same token, the current market seems still to be taking these things in stride and has been very robust for the last 18 months at least. What's driving the situation now? 2020 was was a very strong year for Brazilian equity capital markets overall, mostly driven by the very significant reduction in interest rates from double digits for many, many years until two years ago, it was 14% a year to now about 2% a year. So two years ago, people would put their savings into Brazilian government bonds at 10, 12% returns per year, basically risk-free. That doesn't work anymore. So the migration to lower interest rate environments has kind of led to a migration to more demand in the equity capital markets, mostly driven by local demand, but also by international investors and huge liquidity in the international markets trying to deploy their their funds and their and their liquidity, and Brazil being one of the places where where there's still good returns to to be made. That's actually an interesting distinction. I want to ask you a question about what's driving this as far as who the investors are. So if you look at the domestic market, in the B3 stock exchange, you've got about 3.2 million retail investors, 2 million of those are, are new investors. They weren't, these are, these are people who are, who are not investing a couple of years ago. They're by and large young, younger investors. They're investing relatively small amounts, but it certainly adds up. So the shift for the retail investor out of government bonds, which are now lower yielding into equities and their apparent appetite for volatility, that that's something really new for, for Brazil. We'll come back. We'll come to foreign investors in a moment, but I want to just stick with that Brazilian retail investor. Is that driving a significant amount of the demand for IPOs? We have local funds that have liquidity. So Brazilian funds have become more sophisticated and liquid. And so they also drove a lot of the demand last year and continue to drive the demand for these IPOs. But you're right. Local investors, retail investors have also started to invest and become more used to the fluctuations in the trading prices of securities in the capital markets. So, for instance, the incident that happened recently with the Brazilian government intervening in the state-owned oil and gas company Petrobras, changing its CEO suddenly, did not really Of course, it had an adverse effect on the trading price of the securities, especially of state-owned companies, including Petrobras and others. But local investors, retail investors have understood how the fluctuations work, that there are ups and downs. And we do not see that driving away investors anymore from the capital markets. So they have become more, I would say, sophisticated also in their investment decisions and and used to the fluctuations in the markets. We had a wave of Brazil retail investors, local investors coming into these types of deals in 2007, 8, 9, or maybe more like 10 and 11 maybe. And they got hurt really, really, really badly. Like poor people put all they had into this and they lost it all. And memories are short, right? Yeah, that's we're not seeing that now, right, Toby? At least for now, it seems like they're becoming more more sophisticated. Yeah. Well, too, if you look domestically, you know, where else would a domestic investor be able to put their money now? They're yield starved. Government bonds or securities are not going to provide the income that they're looking for, or at least the possible growth in the future that they need. International investors are looking at other markets. China has largely displaced a lot of investments that could have otherwise come to Brazil for outbound emerging markets investors from the US, Europe, the UK, Japan, and Canada. And if you look to the even IPO performance, I mean, the fairly robust performance of Brazilian IPOs in 2020, about 17% return, so 10 times to market as a whole. 
It still pales by comparison to the 37% that U.S. IPOs generated last year. What we see now is a sort of continued trend of a very active capital markets for 2021. The expectation is that interest rates in Brazil will continue at low levels, especially if the government is able to pass um, reforms that are much needed, tax and administrative reforms. The expectation is that they will be approved by Congress and Senate still during this year. And if the government is able to continue with the subsidies to the to the economy, with the fiscal stimulus, and also inject capital in the economy through the social programs for the poorer, while also keeping the public spending cap rules, that will allow the capital markets to continue to flourish as it has. Is there a risk of government overspending or maybe even inflation at some point that could derail that? Or is there a pretty good balance? Well, there is a concern now, um, and I think some of it has been reignited by uh, the in, in interventionist action that was taken by the government recently, which shows the policy and the view that this government has towards the economy. Uh, it's, a, it's a right-wing populist uh, president. And so I think if, if the, the government concedes to social pressure, especially in light of a second wave of the pandemic in the country, and heavily, again, implements a sizable stimulus package that could trigger inflation. So that's why if if the government is able to still stimulate the economy, provide uh, cash payments via stimulus programs to the poorer in the country while keeping the public spending cap rules, that would would continue to give confidence to investors. Now, if if the post-pandemic scenario is of a public spending that's way too high, as we know, Brazil already has a very high public debt to GDP ratio, and if that's not kept to a reasonable level, then there is the concern that inflation will pick up again and interest rates will increase. And there's also there's an aspect I think of of kind of macroeconomically speaking. The, the fiscal situation of Brazil is very concerning, at least that is the international you know, financial market's view. Brazil was investment grade until years ago. It, it's not anymore. The trend is going downwards. So the fiscal health of the country is, is not great, I think, and it, it's probably deteriorating. I think the government has found that the, these, these programs that help the poor in, in pandemics like these are very popular for support, for popular support. And so I, I don't think that the, the fiscal health of the country is tending to improve. I think it's actually it's actually deteriorating, and that's also the view of, of, kind of the international financial markets. The other kind of thing is what inflation are you looking at, right? There's two indices here. One is the, the government indice, let's call it. It's about 4 or 5%, and that's great. If you look at the private index that's put together by private institutions, it's 24%, and the gap between the two has been widening. Right, so that's a little, you know, it's just it's just a fact. People think of that whatever they want, but I think that's uh, that's something else that that shows why the international markets are starting to be more and more concerned about the fiscal health of the country overall. Yeah, and if you move from that macroeconomic level down into the markets and what's happening with investors, you can see the the, the effects of it. You see, the Brazilian real lost about twenty to twenty five percent of its value over the course of twenty twenty against the U.S. dollar. There were sixty billion heish of net inflows 
from domestic investors, from retail investors into domestic cash equity funds, but there was 90 billion AI net outflows from foreign investors investing in Brazilian cash equities. And even the overall, the Bovespa went up slightly over the course of the year, you know, down in March and back up again, but over the course of the year went up slightly in local currency terms, but went down for foreign investors who were exposed to Brazil, at least to Brazilian equities. And I wonder how that then translates into the robustness and the sustainability of equity offerings if there's a limited ability of the market to absorb new IPOs and secondary follow-on offerings uh, over the course of the next you know, 12 to 18 months compared to what we've seen over the last year. One thing is true, Alan, is that investors have become more selective. So I'd say that there was a moment in time last year when there was so much liquidity, and as we said, especially driven by local demand, that the, the books were, we were told that you know, before even the deals launched, the, the books were already oversubscribed. That, that reality has drastically changed, and we know that it's been much harder for, for issuers to launch and close deals. And that will continue to be the case. We, we know that there are approximately 40 companies that are now preparing to go public, but it is going to be very challenging and difficult for them to really you know, price and close all these deals because investors not only have become selective, but also, again, in light of heightened uncertainty in the Brazilian market, especially driven by the interventionism of the Brazilian government, I think that investors will not only be more selective, but they will be looking at companies that have better corporate governance practices. And also there could be a shift from, you know, state-owned public investment, state-owned companies, investments to private companies uh, because of that. So I, I also think that there, there is one point, though, that I think is important for us to discuss here in light of what we're seeing in, in 21 I mean, as you know, the commodities are very, very hot now, and the commodities prices are high. And I think that that international environment is very favorable for the Brazilian economy as a whole, and therefore for Brazilian companies. That factor, I think, will play an important role in the demand for some of the IPOs of Brazilian companies that are focused on agribusiness, agribusiness-related industries, like the services industries around the agribusiness, and, and commodities in general as well. So there's a number of themes there that you've raised, Fabiana, which are really, I, I really, I'd like to pursue them if we can. Yeah, of course. And, and maybe Tobias, ask you about sectors, because if you look at agribusiness, you look at energy, you look at retail, finance, technology, there are a lot of different sectors where we've seen IPOs already. We've also seen a major retail IPO that was expected this year pulled from the market where they're not going to go forward. Do you see the sector, Tobias, emphasis changing with that, or will it continue to be pretty broad? I think it'll continue to be broad, but there are a few things I think to highlight. One is that kind of technology sectors is clearly coming up. We did two or three technology IPOs and, and kind of internet-based company IPOs this year already. They both jumped 100% on the first day of trading after they after they uh, did their IPO. And that, of course, means that other companies of that type will kind of try to go in the same direction. So technology is kind of a new theme for IPOs listed on the B3 in Brazil. Technology companies historically have gone to the NASDAQ right away without bothering to list on the B3. That's kind of changing. There is another trend that comes together with the kind of technology IPOs, which are, which are that there's a tendency towards smaller IPOs in Brazil on the B3. Historically, the IPOs 
on the B3 have been much bigger and larger average tickets than the ones in the US. There was no such thing as a 50, 75, 100 million dollar IPO on the B3. It needed to be 150, 200, rather three or 400 million dollars for liquidity concerns. So that's kind of a side effect of uh, what came with the, with the inclusion of tech companies and the IPO scenario. So tech is one thing that's kind of coming up and I think will continue to be there because it was very successful. Fabiano, a moment ago, you mentioned corporate governance. And clearly for floats, which are less than all of a company, there are issues around minority shareholder rights, voting versus non-voting classes. And you know Brazil has a certain degree of flexibility, different than other countries, I'd say, in the region. As for sustainability, many investors use investment allocations to instill values, not just to create value. In Brazil, uh, we see companies and fund managers screening for social and environmental practices like they do elsewhere, uh, either by shifting capital out of oil and gas and into alternative fuels uh, and renewable energy, or by questioning mining practices or things like cattle grazing in the Amazon. How important do you think ESG metrics and disclosures will be going forward? Until recently, I think we all believed and discussing with other players in the market down here too that it was a nice thing to have being um, a company that would be attuned to ESG principles. It has become increasingly more a must-have theme. If we look at the market in 2020, there was a massive inflow of funds into emerging markets in ESG-themed instruments in general. And I think the reason for that was that the pandemic enhanced the social and financial inequality worldwide, especially in emerging markets. And and at the end of the day, the pandemic, in my view, triggered or was a catalyst of a demand for responsible investment opportunities. And institutional investors, I think, understand that they play a very important role in transforming the world and also by placing their investment decisions with a view to invest in environment and social sustainable securities, they will be able to achieve that sort of transformational goal of theirs. And in my in, in my opinion, I, I've seen not just in the debt capital markets, but also in the equity capital markets, companies much more concerned about their environmental and social and sustainable practices. They want to make sure that they have clear information and, and pitches uh, to clients towards their sustainability practices. And, and investors now have funds that are just focused on investing in ESG instruments. And they see that those instruments can generate strong financial returns. There is a, a more liquid and, and wider trading market for those securities. That is not, as I said, not just a nice to have thing, but I think increasingly more it's going to become a requirement for investors. I think that's easier to see in the DCM, the debt capital markets world. There were 15 international debt deals out of Brazil this year, 21. Seven of them, half of them were ESG deals. And there were companies, we did one for a, a car rental company. And that's not an obvious thing. And it's different from green bonds, but the ESG kind of theme is is very very strong. Fifty percent of international DCM deals out of Brazil were ESG in 2021, 
And, and so I think that the, the, the debt capital markets are a little ahead of the equity capital markets in this regard. But I totally agree with Fabiana that this is a trend that, that, that is there and it's not going to go back. It's going to, I think, become more important only. And it's not a nice to have. In the debt capital markets, you still need a good credit to sell the deal. But it is if it is ESG, then that is a strong plus. You can't just sell on ESG, but it's not just a little... Yeah, again, as Fabiana said, nice to have anymore. Uh, and we think that that's going to continue this way. And and especially for the debt capital markets, rating agencies are also looking at that, provide a rating to, to that credit, to that company, to that issuance. And so, again, it's it's something that if companies don't focus on, toward, I think in the long run, they will they will perceive that they will have destroyed their value. So it's it, for them, as we are saying here, it's not just a nice to have anymore. So you see market norms shifting to take ESG concerns more seriously. I do want to make that point, Ellen, because we were a sponsor in a in an international conference that was held in the end of 2019, focused on green bonds mostly. And back then, right, Toby, we thought that this was something that, as we said, it was it was something that was a trend. It was a very nice to have thing. It was important to focus on it, but but the shift in the market practice in 2020, and as I said, in my view, triggered by the pandemic, was so clear. I mean, it was a significant uh, increase in in ESG bonds and sustainability linked bonds out of Latin America, out of other emerging regions as well in the world. And again, that is not just a, a trend that happened. I think it was it was enhanced and triggered by the pandemic, but it will stay, and and now it's going to become the norm. At the time, there were still people saying, "Why would an investor accept a lower return for a bond being ESG?" And so many people kind of. You know, adopted that view, and I think they've been taught that that you know, that's exactly what's happening. And again, this is this is the debt capital markets, but if it's happening there in a more kind of diluted way, uh, it clearly is also a, a trend in the equity capital market. Yeah, and of course, there's also the argument which we're seeing or at least hearing more that climate change is a risk factor, that environmental degradation or extreme weather are risk factors, or companies which don't take into account other stakeholders, whether they're customers or suppliers or supply chains, labor. That you know that will introduce risk into their businesses, and that to have a business which has less risk will mean that your risk-adjusted return is in fact higher if you're investing in companies with these themes. And that's that is another argument, right? And a specific example of one of the IPOs we did this year, which was the CSN Mining IPO, one of their core strength that was sold to investors is that they don't have the type of tailing dam at all anymore that caused the problems for Valley uh, years ago. So. That was one of the main things that investors are focusing on. CSN does not have that risk. That was one of the main selling points of that security. Rightfully or wrongfully, but that's what people paid a lot of attention to. So let's stay with risks and what investors are looking at, whether they're institutional investors or retail investors. In Brazil, the disclosure document mainly is the reference form that's required by the Comercial de Valores Mobiliarios, or the CVM, CVMA, kind of like the analog in Brazil to the US SEC. What are the disclosure rules like in Brazil, especially compared to other markets where you've worked? Specifically as it regards to risk factors and risk factor disclosure, the Brazilian documents are much more extensive. You know, the local regulators take the view that, you know, companies should include all kinds of risk factors in their disclosures. And if you read a Brazilian disclosure document, easily 40 to 50 pages are risk factors. The SEC just put out a, a new release last year 
regarding the size of the risk factor section, and they say it should be no more than 15 pages. And if it's longer, you put the important risk factors before the not so important or more gener general ones. So we end up with 40, 45 pages of risk factors, and then we try to condense that to 15 to 20 pages of what's actually the risk, which is not diluted by things like things falling out of space. And I'm not kidding you, that is in a specific risk factor in one of the Brazilian deals that we recently saw. And we're trying to focus in the US part on distilling the risks that are disclosed in the local document into the international without losing any substance of it, because the disclosure documents need to show the same information to the investors in Brazil and to the international investors. So Tobias, in Brazil, how much of the scope of disclosure with respect to risk factors or other things is driven by the regulatory requirements you know, for the reference form under CVM Rule 480? How much of it is market practice? How much of it is just people wanting to cover themselves and avoid liability? I think a third, a third, a third, probably. It's also, if you look at you know, Fabiana said there's 40 IPOs in the makings. I read yesterday that one of the Brazilian banks here has 70, 70 IPOs in the makings until the summer. So if you look at those numbers, the level of attention to each one of those of the, of, in a relatively small market and a relatively limited amount of people who, who are dealing in this market, it's just easy to add stuff as opposed to thinking about what really matters. It's like it's, it's more difficult to write a short letter than writing a long letter. Let's look at 2021. So you've already been involved in a number of IPOs just a few months into the year. Just to put these numbers in perspective, I guess, Fabiana, you mentioned that there's maybe 40 IPOs that are being discussed for this year that are already in the market or have made filings. Tobias, you mentioned that one of the banks in Brazil reported maybe as many as 70 IPOs. And just to put that in perspective, the prior record for Brazilian IPOs was in 2007 with 64. Last year was the most we've had since then, where we had you know, 28 or 29 IPOs, probably, a, you know, a total of a little over 50, if you include the follow-on offerings with that. And th these are significant numbers when you consider that Brazil managed to do an average of one IPO per year just in that period of not too long ago, 2014 to 2016. And we talked about whether the market can absorb all these as well earlier. What do you really think will happen this year as far as volumes, either number of deals, larger deals, sector-specific or otherwise? One of the very senior bankers at Credit Suisse years ago said that the supply of companies that have a billion or two reais plus revenues are just ginormous, very strong, and very much with a growth story, which would support IPO types of transactions, is ginormous. There are thousands and thousands of these types of companies that nobody has ever heard of. They sit somewhere, you know, this is a country of continental size. And the, the, the supply of companies that have the size and the growth prospects for an IPO is fantastic. That, of course, plays towards the trend that Fabiana was describing. Now, that's great. On the uh, kind of on the on the more questionable side, the, the, the capital markets have, I think, been more sophisticated. But overall, I think the financial markets and the financial financing options for Brazilian players are more limited. You know, 80% of Brazilian credit is with five banks. If those banks don't lend to you, that's about it. The Brazilian capital markets, the local debt capital markets, have been somewhat dysfunctional because of the crisis and because of all the uncertainty. One of the reasons why the international debt capital markets have been so strong this year. So the local capital markets haven't been so great. So then what do you do? You go to the equity capital markets, right? There, there are some players, I've heard this three times in the last three or four months, that we are now in the crazy situation in Brazil where companies either file for bankruptcy or do an IPO. 
that's probably very much exaggerated, but it kind of exemplifies the lack of options. Yeah, uh, whether for debt or equity capital markets, how selective are domestic investors compared to foreign investors in Brazil? The international investors are clearly more selective than the local investors. And I think given the huge amount of, if it's 40 or 70, it doesn't really matter. You know, the investors only can look at so many opportunities. And so they will just by necessity become more selective. And if market conditions turn down a, a bit, uh, I think that trend is just going to increase. Are, are international investors more selective than Brazilian investors because international investors also have to layer on currency risk? Or is it because they're likely to be institutional investors? Both of the above. Yeah. Fabiana, anything that you wanted to add? I do want to emphasize how gratifying it's been for us to be part of all of this, because it's true. I mean, Tobias and I would talk about that all the time, especially with our team down here, because everybody's working around the clock. But we are experiencing an unprecedented moment in the history of the Brazilian capital markets. I mean, you have companies from all over the country, from all different industries, sizes, going public. It's really great to be part of all of this. I mean, if you think about it, Ellen, a country's development, in my view, really passes through the capital markets. Like, you know, if you look at all the developed nations in the world, they all have well-developed capital markets. That's true. And well-developed and deep, liquid domestic capital markets in particular. Yes. And that's what fuels development. And you can't alleviate poverty unless you increase GDP per capita which means you need to have you know, efficient allocation resources through well-functioning capital markets and bank markets. Yeah. Here's how I would describe it. Brazil right now, the capital markets are like a big wave for a surfer, and everyone's riding that wave. And you guys are just taking turns on different sets. <laughs> That's about right. Alan, I think, by the way, this is fascinating that you're doing all of this and you, how, you, how you do your homework and catch up on all of it. I mean, you just talk to us about something we do every day. As if it was something you do every day. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm, and, and, and thank you, Fabiana, for getting Tobias to do this with you. <laughs> thank you, Alan. Always a pleasure. Have a nice weekend. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com. <laughs>